Uh, well, hi everyone. It's great to see you. Well, I can't actually see you except for a dozen people here at church, but I know you're out there. Uh, I've seen I've seen many of your faces on Zoom, and it's good to see so many of of you uh, coming together um, today. Uh, I'm freezing cold here uh, at church, and it's making me feel even colder seeing uh, Steve Cove in shorts and t-shirt. Um, so I hope you're warmer at home. Uh, I know Pete's already prayed for us, but uh, let me, I, I feel the need for God's help. Uh, so let's come to God as we uh, look at his word. Uh, Father, we do thank you again for the book of Job. Uh, as we come to the third round of speeches, we ask for your help for uh, us to understand your word and that you speak to our hearts through it and uh, that we would understand what you want to say to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. The death of George Floyd uh, in Minnesota on the 25th of May this year sparked riots and protests all over the US, as, as you know. And, and of course, it also sparked the, um, the start of the Black Lives Matter movement all over the world. Uh, it unleashed decades of pent-up anger and frustration and injustice at the injustice done against African-Americans. Uh, here's one example of a newspaper article by um, the, the Reverend Larry Fryer. It's an opinion piece in the Athens Banner Herald on May 31st. Athens is a city, I had to look it up, uh, in the state of Georgia, in the deep south of America, where racial injustice has been a burning issue for 200 years or more. Uh, this is what Larry Fryer said. Citizens demand an answer. Officials near and far call for calm, but the people want justice, refuse to be ignored and fear justice will again be denied. I understand how every, everyone's cry for justice has not led to justice at all, but yet more injustice, as the system continues to vilify the unarmed victims while patronising their armed assailants in broad daylights. Um, that was our man, Larry Fryer. The cry for justice, the belief that it should be done, that it ought to be done, that it needs to be done, is at the core of our sense of right and wrong, isn't it, as human beings? Uh, we instinctively see it as something that, that we can't live without. And that was the issue for Job as well. For him, justice had to be at the centre of everything because justice is at the heart of who God is. If God really is God, then his world has to be ruled with justice. But the problem for Job is that it seemed like justice had disappeared. In the third round of speeches between Job and his friends, Job cries out for justice. He looks to God to put his case before him, but he hears no answer. If only God would listen, Job knows that he would be found innocent in God's court and that justice would be done. But Job looks around him and sees justice is not done in the world. The wicked are allowed to live happily and they are not judged. But in contrast, Job tells God that he was struck down and undone. Before he was struck down and undone, he lived as someone who made sure that in his world, justice was done. I've got four points uh, today as we go through the third round of speeches. One, the friends don't listen to Job Two, more significantly, he cries out to God for justice, but he hears no answer from God. Point three, 
Job declares that justice isn't done in the world. And our last point is that Job tells God that he made sure that justice was done so that God should treat him justly. Well, let's get into it. The first point is that the friends don't listen to Job, but instead they continue to attack him. Once again, Eliphaz starts the ball rolling in the third round of speeches, like the other two. Uh, He has the most to say of the friends in chapter 22. Uh, You may remember that Eliphaz started off quite polite in the first round of speeches, but but things have really gone downhill since then. Let's have a look at what he says in chapter 22. You can follow along. I've got the uh, Bible passages on the, on the uh, slides to make it easier to follow on. So in chapter 2, verse 5, Eliphaz says, Is not your wickedness great? Are not your sins endless? You demanded security from your relatives for no reason. You stripped people of their clothing, leaving them naked. Not only is Eliphaz accusing Job of being wicked and so he deserves the suffering that God is bringing bringing to him. Remember a familiar story of retribution theology? Friends have been saying that all along. But here he's saying that Job abused his position of power and he's inventing crimes that Job has committed. Now Job was an incredibly, uh, 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 an incredibly wealthy man and Eliphaz says that he committed gross injustice against those he was meant to protect. See how the discussion has deteriorated? Everyone started off in round one as being half reasonable but now Eliphaz isn't even pretending to listen to Job or to be fair to him. He's a bit like a politician who can't beat the opposition with reason so they, they resort to muckraking and name-calling. Eliphaz has convinced himself that Job deserves what he's getting. He still hasn't given up trying to turn Job away from his sins. Have a look in chapter 22, verse 23. If you return to the Almighty, you will be restored. If you remove wickedness or injustice, far from your tent and assign your nuggets to the dust, your gold of Ophir to the rocks in the ravines, then the Almighty will be your gold, the choicest silver for you. Again, we see Eliphaz living in this fantasy world where Job is still rich and his gold is still somehow leading him to wickedness. He's completely ignoring the bleeding obvious which is that Job has lost everything, as we all know. And now Job hasn't even got two coins to rub together. So all this shows that Eliphaz hasn't listened to Job. Bildad speaks next for all of six verses, the shortest book in the the whole book of Job. He hasn't heard Job either and he has nothing left to say. And then Zophar, Zophar doesn't even bother to get up to speak because again, he's got nothing to say. Job is left abandoned and isolated by his friends. But as we've seen before, the thing that really haunts him, the issue that's at the heart of of his suffering, much worse than his friends abandoning him, is the feeling that God isn't listening either. And that's our second point. Job cries out to God, God, where are you? In chapter 23, he doesn't even bother answering Eliphaz. He launches straight into what might be a prayer or it might be Job talking to himself. Let's pick it up in chapter 23, 
verse 3. If only I knew where to find him. If only I could go to his dwelling. I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out what he would answer me and consider what he would say to me. Would he vigorously oppose me? No, he would not press charges against me. There the upright can establish their innocence before him and there I will be judged forever, uh, delivered forever from my judge. Job is desperate to find God so that he can lay his case before him in court. And notice how Job has grown in confidence. As the speeches have gone on, he's more and more convinced that, Job, that God will listen to him and he will find him innocent. God the judge will see that justice is done for Job. If only he can track, track God down. But uh, things don't seem to be going so well because Job says in verse 8, but if I go to the east, he's not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he is at work in the north, I do not see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. God's playing hard to get for Job. He's describing how he can't see Job, in, see God in his pain. And notice that Job isn't talking to God directly here. Before, God, Job addressed God directly. But now he's using the third person. He is not there. I do not find him. All that is describing, uh, uh, representing the distance that now exists between Job and God. He no longer addresses him directly. He's lost that intimacy. Job is feeling alone, cut off from God. Nicholas Walterstorff is an American Christian philosopher who wrote about the death of his son after a tragic mountain climbing accident. Walterstorff said all his life experience of God was, was that, here's a quote coming up, uh, he said that your yoke was easy, on me your presence smiled. But since the death of his son, he said, noon has darkened and where you are, where are you in the darkness? I cannot find you. And that's what it was like for Job. He no longer enjoyed that fellowship. He no longer experienced God's presence and blessing. And Job's yearning is for all that to be restored. And that can only happen if God hears him, sees that he's innocent, and sees that justice is done. And on the one hand, we see Job confident that that will happen, that God must hear his case. But then on the other hand, he's terrified. Have a look at 23 verse 15. He carries out his just de decree against me and many such plans he still has in store. That is why I am terrified beforehand, before him. When I think of all this, I fear him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. God has gone from Job's protector, his friend, his rock, to his enemy who is pursuing him and makes plans to attack him. You can see the war going on inside Job's head, can't you? He's desperate, on the one hand, to meet with God face to face, to lay his case down before him, but then on the other hand, he's terrified that he'll be crushed by God in a storm because God seems intent on stripping his family, his possessions, everything, even his life from him. There's his hope of justice on the one hand, but then a fear of being destroyed in the process. 
And Job keeps coming back to the idea that as God has disappeared, justice has flown the coop as well. And we come to our third point. Job looks around him and sees a world where justice is not done. The wicked are allowed to grow fat and prosper while the oppressed are victims of injustice. So in chapter 24, Job asks why judgment on the wicked doesn't seem to happen. Verse 1, why does the Almighty not set times for judgment? Why must those who know him look in vain for such days? Job goes on that the, the, the wicked... Um, the, the wicked treat the, the poor unjustly. Verse 2, there are those who move boundary stones. They pasture your flocks, they have stolen. They drive away the orphan's donkey and take the widow's ox in pledge. They thrust the needy from the path and force all the poor of the land into hiding. As a result, the poor are left destitute and suffering. Verse 7, lacking clothes, they spend the night naked. They have nothing to cover themselves in the cold. They are drenched by mountain rains and hug the rock for lack of shelter. But still God turns a blind eye, says Job, verse 12. The groans of the dying rise from the city and the souls of the wounded cry out for help, but God charges no one with wrongdoing. You may remember from last week in the second round of speeches that the friends spoke long and often about the fate of the wicked, confidently claiming that the wicked always are judged for their sin. They never prospered. But now Job is saying, wait a minute, fellas, wake up and have a look around you. Have you noticed what actually happens in the real world? In the real world, the rich get richer and the poor get trodden on. And God doesn't seem to care. Now, I wonder if you ever been in Job's shoes? Uh, I don't mean here that, that you've suffered like his, uh, he's suffered. Maybe you have. But, but I'm talking about, um, have you ever seriously looked at the reality of our world and thought, it really isn't a just and fair world? I suspect you have at some point. I think we all have uh, at, at some point. And maybe it's something that continues to trouble you. Now, with the pandemic, you don't have to dig very deep to see the massive inequities and discrepancies between countries. I heard in the news this week that in India's biggest city, Mumbai, tests have shown that in the slums, up to 57% of people have developed coronavirus antibodies, meaning that they've, been, they've, they've, they've had coronavirus, presumably. 57% of people in the slums. Compare that to a developed country like Australia. Even Victoria, that spiked at 720 cases on Thursday, even in Victoria, the, the lack of crowding, the good health care, good housing, good resources all mean that it's so much easier to control the spread in wealthy countries like Australia. As with so much of life, the poor suffer much worse than the rich. Job sees this kind of injustice in the world and he concludes that God must have left his post. God's not doing his job. But then Job gives his final defence and he wants to present to God 
to declare his innocence. And at the heart of Job's defence is his track record of acting justly, looking after the poor and championing their cause. Now the fact that Job's defence comes hot on the heels of him accusing God of not acting justly suggests that Job is being pretty cheeky here and hinting to God that Job has acted more justly than God is acting in the world and that God would actually do well to sit up and take notice of Job's example. And that's our third point, that Job sees himself as a righteous judge. Let's have a look at Job's final defence. He starts back, looking back on his old life, longing for what he used to have. Now it's significant that for Job, the thing he misses the most, the thing that brings the biggest loss for him was his relationship with God, as we've noticed before. Have a look at uh, chapter 29, verse 1. How, long, how I long for the months gone by, for the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone on my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. Oh, for the days when I was in my prime, when God's intimate friendship um, blessed, blessed my house, when the Almighty was still with me and my children were around me, when my path was drenched with cream and the rock poured out for me streams of olive oil. Three times here Job mentions uh, uh, God being with him, watching over him, his intimate relationship with him. Of course he also misses his children and his wealth and his lifestyle, everything else that he's lost. But the overwhelming loss for Job was his relationship with God. Well, then Job keeps talking about the old days. We learn that he had a position of authority and respect, picking it up in verse 7. When I went to the city gate and took my seat in the public square, the young men saw me and stepped aside and the old men rose to their feet. The chief men refrained from speaking and covered their mouths with their hands. And what he did was act like a judge. He would make decisions to see justice done. Verse 11, whoever heard of me spoke well of me and those who saw me commended me because I rescued the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to assist them. I put on righteousness and my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. Then verse 15, I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy and I took up the case of the stranger. God, Job made sure that justice was done. The poor were looked after. He made judgments. People listened to him. This is his proven track record that he's presenting to God to submit as evidence in God's court. And God the judge will have no choice but to find him innocent. As well as that, perhaps there's a hint, as I've said before, that Job's being a bit cheeky here with God, giving him a nudge and hinting that he should be the kind of judge that Job was, that justice should be done justly and swiftly and Job should be shown to be in the right. So Job is questioning God's justice, isn't he? God, where are you, he cries. He seems to accuse God of not acting justly. 
But then he doesn't give up on God because for three chapters in 29 to 31, Job lays his case before God. He believes that if only he can get God to listen, he will do what's right. He will find Job innocent. Job never lets go of that that belief that God will act rightly. Despite all this evidence in his own life and in the world that God has turned away, his hope is yet in God's justice being done. And perhaps that helps us to see Job's cheeky words, not as a rant of someone who has lost faith in God, but the genuine cry of someone desperately trying to hold on to their faith of a good and loving God. The cries of why are legitimate cries for an answer to understand how his faith can sit with his experience of being undone, of things falling apart. Has Job overstepped the mark here? Has he gone too far in accusing God of injustice and wrongdoing? Perhaps. But remember the bet between God and the Satan at the beginning of of the book of Job, that Job would stop fearing God when things got tough. The big picture of the book of Job is that Job keeps hold of God. He doesn't lose his innocence. I want to suggest that all these discomforting words of Job are a legitimate part of the struggle for answers of a believer in pain. And as we said before, Job is a model for how we might respond in suffering. It's more honouring to God when we face our own suffering and the injustices and wrongs of the world with honesty. To cry out at the injustices caused both by human sin but also things beyond our control that we might put down to the hand of God. You see, the friends do the opposite. They try to sugarcoat the world and protect God's reputation. But in the process, they're guilty of gross dishonesty, aren't they? But God calls us to look at these hard questions in the face and to wrestle with them as we try to hold them together with our trust in a good and just God. Because God acting justly, putting everything right in the end, is an unshakable rock that we can rest on. Once again, we see the evidence of that in Jesus. In the book of Matthew, chapter 12, Jesus leaves the synagogue after healing a man with a withered hand. After he leaves, he continues to heal people. Matthew writes that Jesus' healing fulfills a prophecy from the book of Isaiah, and he quotes um, from Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name the nations will put their hope. Jesus proclaims justice to the nations. And he brings justice to victory, verse 20. Does that mean injustice in this world in the meantime won't occur? No. 
There will be injustice. There will be suffering. There will be bruised reeds, as it says in the text. People will get hurt. But there is a day coming. There is a day coming when all things will be put right. When the wicked will finally be punished. When the righteous will be rewarded. And we see the proof of that on the cross. Because Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. And the forces of evil were dealt there along with it. Also from the book of Isaiah, there's a wonderful picture of how God will put, make all things right. In the end, wrongs will be righted. Sorrow will be turned to joy. Let's pick it up from Isaiah chapter 65. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. And in a beautiful picture of the whole of creation being made right and restored, Isaiah describes how pain and death and the things that cause suffering will be no more. Isaiah 65, 25, the wolf and the lamb will lie down together, will, sorry, will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox and dust will be the serpent's food. The serpent is the evil one and he will get what's coming to him in the end and have to eat dust. God's world will no longer be a place of violence and death but it will be restored to a place of harmony and peace, the way things were meant to be before sin entered the world. Job was right, friends, to hold on to that sense, that hope of justice being done in the end. And we have the final proof of God's commitment to dealing with evil and suffering and sin with his son hanging on that cross. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that unlike Job, we have, we have the final picture, the final evidence that you have dealt justly and that in the end things will be put right. We have that evidence um, because you're, from your son dying on the cross for us and knowing that our future is certain, the future of the new creation uh, where all things will be made right in the end. There will be no more crying, no more tears, no more suffering, but justice will be done in the end. Amen. Well, friends, I've got some discussion questions for you. Um, if, you if you would like, uh, if, you, if you are in a group and you would like to stick around and discuss those. Uh, number one, do you think Job's words in chapter 24 are justified? And the second question, how do you respond to injustice and suffering, either in your own life or in the world? What truths in God's word can help you respond to it? Uh, I, try, I hope that you find that helpful to think about those words. Have a great day.